Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host for the next half hour. We'll be talking about something in the scriptures that can calmly be discussed and allow you to fade off into sleep if you want to, or just calmly unwind at the end of a day. We're not trying to start arguments or huge discussions that will keep you up forever. Rather, just trying to say things that we can keep affirming from God's word that we know to be true and allow his Holy Spirit to speak to you and have your thought process go where it belongs as you go to sleep. I'm coming to you from the studios here at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolet Bible Institute. And again, thankful that I get the privilege of being a part of both those ministries as well as Northwoods Retreat, Relay 365, and Foster Family Connect. We're all associated with Silver Birch Ranch. And I do encourage you to go to the silverbirchranch.org website and see what these ministries are all about and pray for us on a regular basis. Tonight I want to talk about the importance of the family and in particular the importance of the father's role in the family. Today it seems like the role of the father in a family is being diminished. The idea of what a father is is being challenged family itself seems to be being challenged as we try and redefine everything. Now, I may not be the smartest person in the world, but I've seen the research that basically talks about father-child relationships and how important they are. I keep hearing about those who are in prison who didn't have fathers at home and role models. and I keep understanding from the research that Young ladies are adversely affected if there's no father in the home. And you can look over the internet, you can find any research you want, but I will tell you that the best environment for a child is to be in a home with a mom and a dad who will lovingly care for and take the responsibility seriously that God gave them for that child. And anything we can do to strengthen the family relationship would be something that could strengthen our nation. Because God works through institutions. And he works through the family. He works through the church. He works through government. We we see God do that throughout history. And those things all have definitions to them. But if it's important to have a healthy father-child relationship, What does that actually look like? What are we actually talking about? Well, my mind immediately goes to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, the very last verse in the Old Testament. And it says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It seems to be an interesting statement that God will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And the consequence of that not happening is that God comes and strikes the land with a decree of utter destruction. It seems to me that fathers are a vital link in that chain. Whenever we start talking like this, there is always people who say, so if there is no father, you're saying there's no hope. And I've never said that. I think that it's very clear 
that the best situation for a child to grow up in is in a loving home where there's a mom and a dad, male and female, who are committed to one another and committed to God and who are committed to their family, their children, raising them in the way of the Lord. I think that is the best situation for a child to grow up in. And I don't think there's any research that goes against that. Now, you can find research that's called research, but I'm talking about valid, real, peer-reviewed research that goes against the idea that a stable family hurts a child. There are times where we need to stick with what we know instead of trying to figure out what we don't know. And we know the commitment of mom and dad to each other and to the children is a good thing. Now, when it talks about turning the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, what is it speaking of? The heart. It speaks of a partnership. A child and father partnership. So that people can understand the idea that these two are partners in life. When you know something, you need to apply it in your life. If I know that the family is a place that should be stable and that I need to lead the family as the husband and the father, then I need to show that in public. I need to continue to look for ways to become a better father at every stage of life. And I need to go out and be an advocate for the family. I need to know, show, grow, and go. The idea of heart here, if we look at the original, it's just talking about the heart or the seat of intellect, emotion, understanding. I need to be a father who understands my children, who thinks about them, who is continually asking what I need to do to help them become the young people they need to be. No matter what stage in life they are, my children are in their late 30s right now. I have two daughters. And I care very much about them, but the needs in their life are different from when they were 12 years old. I need to keep growing as a father. I need to keep looking at what I need to do to help them be all that they can be. There will be nobody in my girls' lives ever to take my place. I am their dad. And I need to take that responsibility seriously, no matter what stage of life we're in. Once again, you may say where well, there could be stepdads and other people that come into life and substitute for their dad, and that's true. And God can make that work, and, and stepdads are used greatly of God in many instances. In fact, the Bible story that I like to turn to is a step-parent called Mordecai with Esther and see their relationship. But the bottom line is the dad, whoever the dad is, they have a profound influence on the next generation. And those of us that are dads need to take that seriously in life. My heart needs to be thinking and turned toward my children so that I can turn them toward God. We need to be partners in this. I need to think of ways to make them successful, and I need to train them to think of ways to help me be successful. I was reading a commentary that said this, Parents are responsible to God and to human society for their children. It is a responsibility assumed by every parent to look after the welfare, temporal and eternal, of his child. 
This responsibility is just because God has framed the family so that nothing can exceed the advantage which parents have in rearing their children. We need to understand that God has placed us in a very special position, and we need to not abdicate that position. I need to understand that Dave, myself, needs to be the one who's responsible for raising the children in my home. I'm responsible for their education. I'm responsible for their theology education. I am responsible to demonstrate to them who Christ is. I am responsible to teach them to serve and to give and to be generous. When I abdicate my responsibilities, then I'm trusting that somebody else will raise my children correctly. We can use tools in life, and we should. And we've heard that it takes a village to raise a child, and that's true. The church should be actively involved in reinforcing what's going on in each home of the members of that church. I should know that if my daughters go over to another person's home, that they're going to hear and see the things that reflect Christ just like they would in my home. But I'm still responsible for what they learn. The people in the other home are not. It makes it a whole lot easier when people are of the same mind frame, when they walk with God and love God and see their responsibility as an adult to come alongside family members of whoever's child it is and represent the king properly to those children. That's an ideal situation. But in my life, I also need to realize that I am the one as a dad that needs to be responsible. When I look into the book of Esther, I see that she was a unique young lady. Her parents had died, and Mordecai, if I pronounce that right, took her and became her dad. And he was a good dad to Esther, as far as I could tell. He seemed to raise her properly. He seemed to care. He seemed to be in her life. He seemed to understand her and the things that were going on in life. When we look at some of the qualities that they had, we can see in Esther 2.11, it says, And every day Mordecai walked in the front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Mordecai was interested in what was happening every day in Esther's life, not just once in a while. Now, if you know what happened here, Esther was actually in the palace, and she was eventually going to be Queen Esther. Mordecai was the one who raised her and was very interested in her doing things right. It didn't matter where she was, in the palace, in his home, no matter where they were, Mordecai seemed to want to know what was going on in her life so that he could be the influencer that she needed. Mordecai understood what Esther's parents wanted. This was really Uncle Mordecai who became her dad, her stepdad. So he was interested. Let me ask you if you're a parent. Are you interested in what your kids are doing? I mean, genuinely interested. Are you interested enough to rearrange your schedule so that you can figure out what they're actually doing, what they're up to, what they're, what they're thinking, who they're hanging out with, what they're doing when they hang out? Are you interested genuinely in your children? Mordecai was. And it wasn't as if he was smarter than her that she needed that because she was an adult. She was in the 
palace, and like I said, eventually she became queen. But Mordecai was older than she was, and he loved her, and he wanted to make sure that she never forgot that, that in her life there was an older man who cared deeply about her and her success, and he would always be there for her. And he went out of his way to make sure he showed that. Esther and Mordecai actually confided in each other on a regular basis, which is kind of fun to see. Mordecai chose to be an active part of Esther's world, even though he had limited access. He wanted her world to be the best it could be and did what he could with limited input. You know, as, as children grow and develop, they become more and more independent, and actually that's what we train them for. It wouldn't be healthy for somebody to be totally dependent on their mom and dad when they're 40 years old. That doesn't work. They should become independent. That doesn't mean that we ever abdicate our role of being mom or dad. But it does mean that they're independent from us, and now we have to encourage them in a different way. Well, Mordecai, he would be one who was actively involved the best that he could be. Likewise, mom and dad, you should know what's going on in school, what they're teaching, what's going on in locker rooms. Perhaps you need to ask your child what you need to do to enter into their world, to enter into understanding what goes on when you're not around. Not because you want to judge all their friends and not because you want to judge everything they do or say. I think there's a tension here with children who want to know that you trust them, but at the same point see you asking questions as demonstrating that you don't trust them when you do trust them, but you're interested in their life. Once again, you may see something that they don't see because every human being lives with this thing we call perspective. If I talk to my daughters, I do not have their perspective. I have a dad's perspective. A dad who is pushing 70 years old in a few years and has a total different perspective on life. My one daughter is married and she's a teacher in a school and she's a great hunter and her husband is an exceptional hunter. They love hunting and it's really fun to be a part of their lives but I am not in their world on a regular basis. So I have to ask questions in order to get into their world. It's not that I'm trying to pry. It's that I'm interested in what they're doing. And as I'm interested in what they're doing, it can be interpreted as me being somebody who's a little bit of a busybody trying to control their life, but I'm not. I just want to know what's going on. See, once again, I don't see myself as smarter than my kids. In fact, I think they're far smarter than I am. I'm just older. And I care deeply about them. And I want to pray for them. And I want to see them live successful lives. Therefore, I need to know what's going on so I can pray for them. So I can use my perspective to help them see something maybe that they don't see. I may see something that's helpful. I may see something that's irrelevant. Because again, we're both locked into perspective. When you look at the story of Esther, Esther and Mordecai were definitely in their own worlds, their own perspective. Mordecai was not in the palace. He was not royalty. He did not have servants 
he was at the gate of the palace. He wasn't even allowed on the palace grounds. But he knew about government, and he knew that he would hear rumors, and he wanted to know the best he could what was going on, and I'm sure Esther communicated with him as she could. Esther and Mordecai did confide in each other on a regular basis. He did choose to be active in Esther's world, even though he had limited access. We need to do that if we're parents. We need to try our best to understand what's really going on in the worlds of our children and not just ignore the fact that they're away from us for many hours a day in school or going to a youth group or whatever else it might be. We need to establish from the time they're young the idea of communicating honestly and knowing that we're in their corner that they can tell us anything that they're struggling with in their mind and we can talk them through it because of the experience that God has given to us and we actually care. Esther and Mordecai had some kind of relationship where they communicated in a very effective manner. In Esther 2, 21 to 23, it says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Brichthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on king. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found out to be so, these men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai actually became a potential embarrassment to Esther, but he wasn't. He actually was sitting at the gate and he heard something that was said against the king and he told Esther about it. Esther didn't say, oh man, you're making me uncomfortable because, you know, you're listening to what people say and this could just be rumors or whatever else, you're embarrassing me, that didn't happen. She actually went to the king with the problem. She trusted Mordecai. Now, here's what's interesting to me. That trust wasn't built because of this conversation. That trust was built many conversations before. I think that Esther knew that Mordecai was in her corner. I think that Mordecai knew that Esther was in his corner. I think they understood that they could trust each other. Mordecai was going to do what's right. And what was right in this case was to report that two people were angry enough with the king to want to kill him. And they were plotting to do so. Father's job is not to compromise with truth. If this would have been a situation that would have been harmful to the king and therefore to Esther, this could have been something that was disastrous for the whole nation. Mordecai needed to say something. So often... We're quiet because we don't want to embarrass our children or our children don't want us stepping in when we see something that needs to be stepped in on. In both ways here, I need to have the courage as a dad to say things that I know are harmful, that I see is harmful, and that is affecting this situation that my children are in. I need to have courage to say something and my children need to encourage me to say something. Not to avoid saying something, but to say something. That's hard in this day and age. We seem to want someone else's parents to do that. We don't want to be embarrassed 
Mordecai could have been an embarrassment for Queen Esther. He could have been an embarrassment many times in his life. But I think the relationship that was established at one time is carrying out now, even though she's an adult and she's living her own life as a queen. Their communication and their trust and their love for each other continues. In Esther 3, verses 1 and 2, we're told about how the king promoted this man Haman. He wanted him to be second in command and wanted people to respect him. In advance of him, he set his throne above the officials who were with him. Verse 2 of Esther chapter 3 says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage. Now here's a dilemma right away. Mordecai understood that Haman was appointed by the king and needed to be shown respect. But he also understood that the king of kings said that we don't bow down to anyone but him. Haman was going to listen to God. Here's a situation where Esther could be totally ashamed or she could be totally supportive. This time in history is where you want your children to be those who have understood your intent in life. Esther, when she probably heard the situation completely, understood that Mordecai was somebody who did what was right, and he was going to do what was right. She probably understood that totally. That's often hard when we make decisions as parents, knowing that our children have the potential for being embarrassed by us. Well, when everyone else bowed, Mordecai did not. Esther 3, 5 to 6, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. Haman was a guy who was very prideful. Second in command, had access to the palace. Esther probably saw him on a regular basis. Mordecai wouldn't bow. Esther understood that Mordecai wouldn't bow. She probably understood what was going on and had to quietly back Mordecai because Mordecai, it was not known to the king, that Mordecai was her acting dad or stepdad. Well, Haman went on and he planned to kill the Jews. There's a certain people, he told the king, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Haman goes to the king and basically tells him, there's a group of people that we shouldn't tolerate in this kingdom. They don't listen to you. They don't listen to your laws. You want people to bow down to me. There's one that doesn't, and all the Jews are the same. Once again, what's interesting here is that he doesn't know that Esther is a Jew. He doesn't understand that, but he's speaking to the king. The king actually signs a decree that these people should all be killed and their goods given away and an amazing thing. And Mordecai responds, and he responds in a way that is confusing to Esther at first. 
Once again, this relationship between Mordecai and Esther shows itself. When Mordecai learned what all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai is doing something to embarrass Esther. Or was he just doing what's right? He realized that there was an edict that was signed that would kill all the Jewish people. And he immediately went into action. Mordecai seemed to be a guy who loved people. He loved God. He loved people. He wanted to do what's right. And Esther knew that that's who he was, but he was chancing being totally embarrassing to his adopted daughter. In the fourth chapter of Esther, the fourth verse, it says, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. See, her heart was turned toward Mordecai. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that it might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Mordecai responds to try and help her understand. I'm sure Esther was wondering what was going on and why he was doing this. She might have been thinking, this is a a tremendous inconvenience. This is an embarrassment. I'm not sure. But their past history together, the fact that they had built trust together, was important at this moment in history. And so she called one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what was and why it was. That's a key phrase. She said, you know, I am sure that Mordecai is doing this for a reason that's good. Daughters, sons, parents. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that kind of relationship? That doesn't come by accident. I need to live in a way that's above reproach for my kids for my co-workers, for the world in which I live in. I need to do what's right, even if it seems embarrassing to do what's right. And in this particular case, it was embarrassing. Well, Esther eventually got the copy of the law that was written, and, and if you read the book of Esther, you see what happened there. Haman went out, and he tried to get Mordecai to bow, and he got so angry with him not bowing that he went and he prepared gallows for him to hang on, and he wanted to go ask the king for a decree to hang Mordecai. But while he was going in, he didn't know that the king the night before had a dream. He couldn't sleep, so he got up and he asked to be read to, and somebody read to him the history of when Mordecai actually told on the guys that wanted to kill him. And the king asked if anything had ever been done to honor Mordecai, and they said no. So when Haman came in in the morning wanting to destroy Mordecai, the king asked Haman, what should I do with somebody that I really want to honor? And Haman, being a self-centered person, thought it was about him. But it wasn't. It was about Mordecai. And he told him, take him, put him on my horse, have him go through the town, have him all you know, bow down to him, have them all see and just say, this is what the king does with somebody that he honors. And Haman again thought it was him, but then the king told him, go do that to Mordecai. Can you imagine Haman leading the king's horse with Mordecai on there shouting, this is how the king honors one who is somebody he wants to honor? 
In the whole process, the queen had a couple banquets and exposed the fact that Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and exposed the fact that Haman wanted to destroy the Jewish people. The king was furious, and Haman ended up getting executed on the very gallows he made for Mordecai. Now, when you look at this whole passage, very seldom do you think of it in terms of parent-child relationships. But as I read this story and I began to think about the importance of child-parent relationships from a very early age, the importance of establishing trust, the importance of having our hearts turned towards our children and our children's hearts turned towards us, I thought it very appropriate for this time in history. I hope that our children understand that they shouldn't be embarrassed by parents who want to do what's right. And I hope parents actually want to do what's right and know what's right and know what's going on so that they can respond to the various challenges that present themselves in the world in which we are living. Once again, I thank you for listening to Nighttime. Hopefully there's some thoughts here that could allow you to be a better parent if you're a parent or a better child. Good night for now.